Welcome to Buddha the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest today, my second guest today, since I did another interview earlier, is Barbara Berger. Uh, Barbara lives in Denmark, although she was originally uh, in the U.S. She she left the U.S. in the mid-60s because of the Vietnam War. Hooray, Barbara. <laughs> and uh, settled in... Yeah. Yeah, right on. Settled in Scandinavia. Um, like you one of those people from that generation. Oh yeah, I had a high draft number, so I didn't, Okay, so I didn't, you know that you know what we're we're up against here. <laughs> yeah. And and it's funny because in those days I had this very kind of spiritual attitude toward those things. It's like I thought, all right, well it's really it's raising of consciousness and meditation and all that's gonna solve <laughs> solve these problems. But the right. older I've gotten, the more political I've gotten actually. Okay. I just I find myself getting more and more infuriated by you know, various <laughs> issues in the world and, and whatnot. Okay, okay. Uh, I, I hear you loud and clear. Well, let's, we can talk about all of these things. Yeah. And so here's some little things on your website that kind of little vignettes of, of your life. Child of middle class America, father Pentagon military man. That must have been interesting. Rebel, <laughs> runaway. I did that. Sarah Lawrence College. Child yeah. bride, hippie, <laughs> yeah. world traveler, crusader, writer, expatriate, new age teacher, three children, three marriages, sick and miserable, poor single mother, successful career woman, best-selling writer and lecturer, dedicated spiritual seeker. I now realize that it was the same urge for personal and planetary transformation that fueled all these phases of my life and the evolution of my consciousness. The same urge led me to write all my books. I think that's a, a very astute insight. Thank you. Thank you <laughs> for that fantastic introduction. <laughs> yeah, well, you wrote it. <laughs> Thank you. And you lived it. Mm -mm, definitely. Yeah. Um, so, Barbara, what well, uh, so I am truly the, the an awakening human being. When you when you think about what you just said, I mean, my life story has been you know, breakdown, breakthrough, breakdown, breakthrough. Yeah. So, Barbara, I read uh, a good portion of The Awakening Human Being. I'll mm -hmm. continue with it later. Um, and what I didn't get from reading it is much about, I mean, you speak with some authority about a lot of points and offer a lot of practical advice. Yeah. Um, but we didn't hear much about you and how you came no. to a point where you could uh, you know, be qualified to give such advice. <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, that's not really what that book is about. I've written really a lot of books, so so. Yeah. And and of course, the the background to that is I'm a rather well-known teacher here in Scandinavia. Uh -huh. So so that's sort of this book is sort of the summary of what I've been teaching here for many years. But okay. uh, I'd be happy to share some background stuff with you. That would be great fun. Yeah, whatever you feel is germane to the story, you know. I mean, we all have our interesting stories, and some right. of it, some of it, I mean, it probably all has to do with our spiritual development, but some of it yeah. more obviously than others. Well, I would say that, uh, you know, being born as a, as a child of middle-class America and growing up in the 50s <laughs> in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., because my father worked in the Pentagon, um, just being born into that environment, which is very, very uh, limiting, very middle class, and having an awareness actually from the very beginning that, what am I doing here? I mean, I always knew that I was like, I, I, it didn't fit, and I didn't belong, and I had a different vision. I don't know where I had it from, because there was nothing in my environment that gave me any input. And so I would say that it was really the trauma of the Vietnam War, which we were talking about before, that sort of 
really pushed me into choosing a different pathway. I had a boyfriend who got drafted, and I was 18, 17, 18, and my father worked in the pen. He was a high military person. He was assistant secretary of the Air Force, so it didn't go down very well that he had a daughter who had a boyfriend, and he didn't want to go to Vietnam. So, so that was like the whole deal, and that was in the early 60s before... It was sort of the big protest. We were sort of on the, on, the, on the beginning edge of it. And so I ran away from home, and we, we went to the War Resisters League in New York. And they, at that time, it was, you know, if you were a conscientious objector, that was the only possibility of not going. Um, and uh, you had to be religious. And Steve, who the guy was, he wasn't. So I ran away from home. We got married. It was the only way for me to get away from home because my parents had the police after me. It was the whole, it was really a big drama. And then we went underground and uh, we were underground actually for two years. Um, had been to Europe and got deported, had been to Canada, but that was way before anybody went to Canada. And we finally ended up in, in, in Mexico City. Um, we had hitchhiked actually all the way from New York City to Mexico City. It took us about three weeks. And we ended up in Mexico City, and on the very first day that we arrived, we were sitting in a park in the middle of Mexico City. With a, we only had $100 left. That was all we had. We didn't know anyone. We didn't speak Spanish. We had no idea what we were going to do, where we were going, and we were scared. And we were sitting on this bench, and we were sort of gazing at nothing. And there was a guy in the distance, a very, very special-looking man. He sort of looked like he had stepped out of a Dostoevsky novel, a very tall, blonde guy with a beard. And he was going around sketching people in this park where we were sitting. And then he came over to us, and, and we were sitting on this bench, and then he looked at us and he said, you guys are really beautiful. Can I sketch your faces? And we said go ahead, right? And, and Steve, the guy I was with, he had, we both had really long hair. That was the look in those days, right? Sure. And, um, and so this guy, he sits down on the grass before us, and he starts to sketch us, and then suddenly he, he, he has this big sketch pad, and then suddenly he puts it down, and he looks at us, and he says, what are you doing here? And um, we had been underground for two years. We had never, ever told anyone that we were running away from the, from the military police, that Steve had been drafted, and that we, didn't, we always had some story about we were students or what. But for some reason, we, we, we blurted it all out to this guy, you know, that we were running away from the Army and that we were against the Vietnam War and we were scared shitless and we didn't know what to do. And then when we got done, he said, I am a pacifist and I am from Sweden. And um, I think you're doing the right thing. And you can go home with me. I'll take you to Sweden, and you'll be safe with me. And wow. it was like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> and he did. And it turned out that this guy was one of the most famous artists in Sweden. And his brother was a very famous journalist on the biggest newspaper in Sweden. Did he buy you and a so, plane ticket, by the yes, way? Yes, everything. Yeah. We had no, I mean, he paid for everything. Wow. We became a member of his family. He took us to Sweden. And also the other thing was that he, he was sort of like the first person in my life that sort of saw the light in me. Hmm. And, 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 and like he, he said to me immediately, well, what, all this is happening. What do you want to do, Barbara? 
And I said to him, well, I want to be a writer because I, I, always, I always was writing stuff. And then, so immediately he bought me a little typewriter. And, you know. So when I came, to, so first of all, when we came to Sweden, we were like. Hang on a second. I have a practical, mundane question. If, yeah. you're, if you're underground, uh, how, do you, how is it that you have a passport and you can go from U.S. to Mexico and Mexico to Sweden and all that without, or was that just in the days when they didn't have their act together? And the, they you, didn't. Well, actually, it's really interesting that you say that because when we got deported, when we were underground, one of the first places we went to was England, and we got deported from England back to New York, and we were so sure that when we landed in New York that the police were going to be waiting for us, and we, when we went through Kennedy, we, we never, ever figured that out, and somebody later told me that they believed it had something to do with my father. Um, oh. They, they actually my, possibly my, knew, knew who you were and decided to let you slide. Yeah, because it comes later on in the story, two things with my – because my father was very high up in government. So anyway, we never quite figured out – this is a question that I can't really answer. And my, my father and mother are dead, so I – but the thought has arisen this. But anyway, we did have passports still. And so – and this guy, he took us to Sweden. And we became celebrities when we got off the plane there because Sweden was very um, – anti-American at that time and they were not a member of NATO and we became like these celebrities the 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 the, the other America um, and you know we were on TV and and then I, I decided because I was so traumatized by these two years of being underground and and having run away from home and suddenly being out there and taking all these drugs that was the other bit but um, so I wrote a book called The Journey, which was actually about the, the other America, about the youth movement, and so on. And so I suddenly became this famous person in, in, in Scandinavia because of that. Um, and we got political asylum in Sweden. So there we were in Sweden. It was also like, what are we doing here? <laughs> it's like very cold and very blonde and... And it was like, you know, it was, yeah, anyway. So, so anyway, so that was the beginning of this sort of getting, you know, thrown into this cauldron of life at a very young age and being totally sort of bowled over by it. But then I suddenly became famous, and then I came to Denmark because at that time there was something called the Bertram Russell War Crimes Tribunal. And my book, which was about the other America, the young America who were saying no. I mean, I got involved in all this stuff. The book was published here in Denmark, and I became also a celebrity here, and I had my own column in the newspaper, and it was like all this stuff, they wanted to know what I thought, like because I was sort of this representative of another face of America here in Scandinavia. But for me, it was like, I wasn't interested in that. I wasn't interested in being famous, and I got offered all these columns and jobs, and I could be, I, I mean, people thought I was really crazy for saying no to all this stuff, but that was in, see, that was in the late, so we're, when late we came, 60s. yeah, and when we came to Sweden, that was in 66, and when I came to Copenhagen, that was in 68, when all this happened, the, the, the war crimes tribunal, and and this sort of this sudden fame, and this offering of, you can make money by talking about all this, it was like, I, I was also so young. I, mean, I was only like 22. I had written this book when I was like 20, and it was like, you know, 
And so the whole deal then was you had to go to the East. You had to go to India. You had to, I mean, it, the scene here in Europe was, you know, like in America we smoked pot, but in Europe they were into hashish. That was the thing. <laughs> and it was like, it was a much more psychedelic, dark scene in a way. Hmm. But it was also, you know, the influence of going to going to the East was part of the thing here. You had to... You had to go to India, so so we decided to go. And oh, now I was no longer with with the American guy. We we broke up, and I I met a Dane. And so we hitchhiked again. I mean, when I think about it, overland to Afghanistan, it took about that. Also took about three weeks, four weeks of just in the winter time. When I think about the things I've done, and coming to Afghanistan, by the time we got there, I was so ill. Um, and it totally freaked me out to be, I mean, you know, when you see the pictures of Afghanistan, the war in Afghanistan today, I mean, I really wonder what they could possibly be bombing because when I was there in 1960, the end of 68, the beginning of 69, there was nothing there. I mean, and it was like completely going back to the dark ages. But in those days, the hippies, we, we, from Europe, the hippies, they went overland through Turkey, Iran, Afghanistan. That was the route to get to India. Yeah, I, I interviewed a guy who did that um, named Radhanath Swami now. And uh, it was a fascinating book. He, he practically, he almost died every other page in this book. Me too. He finally got to the border of India and they wouldn't let him in. And yeah. they said, go back where you came from. But he had no money or anything else, so he, he, he finally got in the country. But anyway, this is your story. Continue, please. Well, anyway, so that so 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 being undernourished, sick, the middle of winter, having no money, and ending up in an Afghan hospital, which was more or less just a, in Kandahar of all places, which is more or less just a, a mud hut, and then in the middle of the winter you had this long queue of people standing outside, and, and everybody rolled up their sleeve, and then this one doctor went by with a sort of a needle, a hypodermic thing that size, and just. In everybody's arm, and then you could go home and die, right? Jeez. So I realized at that point that I had to get help from a real doctor, and so we decided we had to get to Kabul, and we went to we finally got to Kabul, and then I went to the American embassy, and I knocked on the door, and at that time it was, it was probably the same today, but it was like this fortress with these huge doors, and I remember standing there, you know banging away and finally somebody came and opened and I said I'm sick please help me and they took one look at me and they said we don't help hippies and they slammed the door and so I decided I got to call my father I couldn't think of anything else to do because I was really I was really afraid that I would die so I called my father who I hadn't spoken to in a really long time my parents and I said, I'm in Afghanistan, and I think I'm going to die. <laughs> Can you help me? <laughs> and then he said, We don't help hippies. <laughs> no, he said, wait 24 hours and go back to the embassy. Because I told him I had been to the embassy and right, slammed the door. what had happened. And so he said, well, wait 24 hours and go back to the embassy. And I did. So I waited 24 hours, and I went back to the embassy, and I did the thing again. I knocked on the door, and then they opened the door. And then I said, my name is Barbara Berger. And they said, oh, yes, please, come in. <laughs> yeah. And I sort of walked in. And, he said, and then, then, then they said to me, 
we don't know who your father is, but we got a top priority telegram from the State Department saying to help you. And it was like, <laughs> and so then I got into this, it was like, a, like getting into America out there in the middle of, you know, nowhere. It was like this compound in behind this wall, you know, and everything was American and it was modern and they had real doctors and they had cornflakes and and they put me in a bed and I had pneumonia and I was undernourished and all this stuff and they took care of me for quite a few days and fed me for quite a few days and and then the doctor said if you want to live you got to go back to Europe as soon immediately when we let you out of here you can't go on to India because you'll die so so I did that took another three weeks Are you because, hitchhiked back? yeah because there was no I mean again I was, didn't gonna, have any I was hoping money. you were going to you know, get some money from your father and fly back. No. So you hitchhiked back. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So I think I weighed about uh, 100 pounds when I got back to Denmark. It was really, really not much of me left. But, mm. but anyway, that was sort of then that was sort of like the end of that period of total freaking out, drugs, chaos, that whole scene. And then that the next thing that happened after that was – I discovered macrobiotics. We discovered macrobiotics. It was like it, somehow I had to get well, first of all, but also there had to be some way of creating safety and order after all these years where I had been sort of on the road, underground, taking drugs, you know, freaking out and doing all the things that we did. But it, it got to the point, and also I had seen so many of my friends who had died people who had taken too many drugs, people who were too freaked out. It was like it got to the point where it was also too scary in the end. Mm -hmm. Like there had to be some way of making sense of this life experience, and there had to be a more productive way of being a rebel also and of achieving higher consciousness. So the next, the next uh, sort of chapter for me was this macrobiotics is like this sudden miracle. I ate brown rice for 10 days, and I started getting better. You know, and then so the next book that I wrote a couple years after this was called Eat Brown Rice and Make Revolution. That was my next book, which became another sort of cult. That's why I say I don't tell so much about my story in the book that you have, but people here they know me a bit more. So that was sort of like that was sort of a kind of a call to arms to the whole hippie movement that, you know, you couldn't just smoke hashish all the time and be angry at society, that there had to be some more productive way to live, to take better care of your consciousness, to take better care of your body. Uh, if we really wanted to change the world, how are we going to do this practically? And that was sort of the start of this whole organic, uh, simple living, back to the land. I'm sure it was the same in the States, right? We're, we're, that, that was sort of the next thing. And then I would say that, okay, and then we, we founded the, the East-West Center in Copenhagen, and we were the leaders of the whole macrobiotic. We had a shop and the, the teaching and the, all that stuff for many years here in Copenhagen. But um, what started to happen for me anyway was that I started to see in all this teaching about healthy living, a better diet, you know, taking control of your life in that way, I started to notice that the, the hundreds and hundreds of people who were coming to us for advice, and some of them very, very ill, I started to notice that there was something else going on. Why was it that, you know, two people could come and have cancer, and you gave them both the same dietary advice, 
you know, the brown rice, the miso soup, the whole thing that we were doing. And the one person would get better and the other person would actually die. So then I started to, 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 to become aware of the fact that I called it at that time sort of the, what's the X factor here? And then I, that sort of led me to the next big stage and the next development stage for me was this about the, the, the awareness of the, the, the mental, psychological, spiritual aspects of all of what we are experiencing. That was really the... I myself also became very disillusioned with macrobiotics and left it and, and uh, I mean that's a whole long other story that whole movement and with its hierarchy and its guru and its whole thing it was very sort of based on the body identification food and that whole very very materialistic actually when I look back at it now and so the fact that I left that I was also sort of considered a traitor to that movement <laughs> So yeah, and so so that sort of led me to the to 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 the work that I've been doing the last many years, the last twenty five years, the mind consciousness, uh, an ever expanding understanding of the human condition, I would say. And and so the book that you have, this one, the awakening, the awakening human being, right? That that's the one you have is is really an outlining of what I've been teaching with my son Tim Ray here in Scandinavia and I think the the other thing I'd like to say about this approach that we've been using is that Scandinavia is probably the most non-religious um, societies in the world I mean the people here are definitely not religious you cannot talk about God spirituality that kind of stuff and get get away with anything here. So I learned, and that's why this book is sort of very rational, how to, how to explain the nature of consciousness and the way the mind works without using any sort of spiritual, God-related terminology. And so that has sort of forced me to, to, to try to boil it all down to the bare bones, you could say. What is the universal truth in all the different teachings? And how can I explain this in a way that children can get or anybody can get just by hearing what I, and can you test it yourself? So that's sort of the, the you've read the beginning of the book. I have these, the, the mental laws. It's, and actually it's very popular here in Scandinavia, this whole idea of mental laws. It's sort of a way of presenting the nature of consciousness and the nature of mind in a way that most people can actually relate to. So, so that's really what that's about. Cool. So, um, my life has there's a lot of similarities to yours, but okay. yours, yours is even more out there. It seems to me. And, I, mean, I, I was hitchhiking what did across. You do the, about the, what did you do about the army? I had a high draft number. Okay, so there was a lottery in those days. Right, and, right. and they chose they they chose according to your birthday you got right. a particular number and mine was 284 or something which was high enough that they never got to it in in uh, drafting people. And, so God is really on your side, right? Yeah, so I just plunged into being a meditation teacher and uh, you know didn't have to worry about the draft. That was nice. <laughs> well, actually, the guy that I was married to that I ran away with, Steve, after um, after we broke up, and then there was this. Amnesty. Remember President Ford? He, yeah. Uh -huh. He went. I stayed here, but he went back. So he 
he went back after the amnesty. He was fine. So nothing yeah. ever happened to him either. Uh, well, you weren't going to get drafted. I mean, so you no, were just exactly. you were just yeah. hanging around with him. You could have gone come and gone anytime you wanted, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But, uh, but I'm just just to say what happened to him. He did go back. Um, yeah. Hmm. So um, when you began to realize that it wasn't. Uh, all about the body and just you know mm-hmm. e- eating pure food that that wasn't going to do it for you ultimately uh, mm. what what spiritual things did you begin to explore well i would say that the first thing that i that i really uh that really spoke to me after macrobiotics i also must say that i i've also became I, i've always done things to extremes you can hear that uh, so i was so fanatic macrobiotic and i had three children and you know the whole deal there and then i finally collapsed from malnutrition also from that yeah and uh, after that, I think the thing that really caught my attention was the science of the mind. Uh, you know, the old, uh, the, the, the new thought movement in America, Ernest Holmes, uh, this kind of sort of trying to map out the way our thinking influences our experience. I would say that it, for me, that was like, Taking taking back responsibility for my experience instead of you know putting it out there, food, whatever it is, the Vietnam War, all of these things. But take take for me that was sort of the, a, a cataclysmic shift, you could say, that the way I view my experiences, the the, the thoughts that I have about it, that I actually have some choice here. I mean that 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 I can see also with all the people that I teach. I also work as a therapist. The, 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 whole, the whole understanding that we actually have a choice, that we are not our thinking, that we, we don't have to be run by it. So that's, that, that, I think that was the next, really the next step for me before I really became aware of the, of the really great spiritual teachings and, and the whole thing about context, content, you know, the nature of consciousness, all of these things were where I am now. So what were these really great spiritual teachings that you became aware of? Yeah, I mean, eventually all the, 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 the great teachers, I mean, Sri Nisargadatta, uh, the Bhagavad so all, all of the, the traditional mm-hmm. teachings, I have more, like, I don't know everything about everything, but I've studied all of these things, and, and I have never had one sp- specific uh, guru or you could say that the inner guru has been there all the time, but but I haven't had one specific teacher. Um, but you've had um, obviously you've done a lot of study, and did you did you eventually kind of devise a practice for yourself which you adhered to? Yeah, definitely. I mean, me- daily meditation. I, I would say again, you haven't read. I can understand the whole of the awakening human being, but the second half is. A lot of different practices, and I tried uh-huh. to sort you've, of. You've done a bunch of them. Yeah, I noticed that because yeah. I read the whole table of contents and, yeah. and skimmed through. But yeah, I okay. sort of tried to pick and, and you know divide it up into. I have these two different uh, sort of approaches to, to, to spiritual practice. One I call focus tools, and the other I call investigation tools. Mm-hmm. And so I've tried to pick and choose from the different practices. I've. And, and the, I mean, obviously, I won't write about something that I haven't found effective for myself. <laughs> right. So I have tried to pick and choose from the various practices that I, I've used, and which I feel have helped me a lot in this book. So, so I would say in the in the focus tool bag, that is 
you know, that you learning that what you fo focus your attention on grows and how can you use that to improve your experience of life? And when we understand that what we identify with, that's what we, we experience. I mean, that just that understanding and the realization that we, one, when we know this, we actually have a choice. As long as we're unconscious about the nature of this mechanism of mind, we're victims, actually, of, of forces that we don't really understand. So when we get this awareness that thought is cause, again, I'm talking about our experience, thought is cause, and our experience of reality is based on our interpretation. You could say reality is what it is, and every event that happens, people have different experiences or different interpretations of this event, and that's what they get to experience. And once we see that, it's so liberating. I mean, we're talking about now we have a choice. And so all of the focus tools in this book that I recommend are different ways of using our ability to choose. What are we going to focus our attention on? What, what do we want to see in this experience? So, so that's the one thing. And the other kind of tools in the book are what I call investigation tools. Again, I have discovered now that because we are so identified with our thinking and so attached to our stories, um, people who come to me who are in crisis, that's the kind of therapy I do, it's always that their identification with their story is so uh, solid that they don't see that they have any options. That's really, you could say, in a way, the, the definition of crisis, right? And so I investigation tools, that's really reality testing, you could say. Questioning the stories we have about what's going on in our life is also an extremely powerful spiritual practice. Um, to, to find out, is it true? Is our interpretation true? And, and often people, especially people who are unhappy or who are in crisis, they have these catastrophic interpretations of, you know, whatever it is, right? And so this kind of exercise of, of you know, sitting with your thinking and saying, reality and my thinking, how do they match in any way, right? So, so yeah, so those are the kind of tools and those are the kind of practices. You asked me what kind of practices I do. Those are the, I, I myself go from the one to the other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I noticed uh, you mentioned Byron Katie in your book, and mm. she, she has a very useful way of prying right. one's loose from the you know, rigid adherence to one's to story as being absolutely true. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, she's brilliant. I, I'm a really big fan of her, her work, and I've used it a lot for myself, and I use it very successfully with clients also, mm. people who are willing to go there. If you think about it, um, I'd say the vast majority of people in the world, probably more than 99%, um, really assume that the world is as they see it, you know, exactly. and that their their story of who they are and what they are and, mm. and what's actually going on is real. There's there's no other sort of yeah. possible interpretation, yeah. you know, and so I guess would you say that, I mean, the, the awakening human being, I guess you would probably agree that an awakening human being is one who is beginning to kind of 
rouse themselves from that slumber of, you know. Well, that's my definition of awakening, actually, to, to realize, to, to awaken, to, to become awake to the, to the nature of consciousness. And as you become awake to the nature of consciousness, you see that there is this field of consciousness, and, and within it, thoughts arise and disappear, and they are not who you are. This, right. this understanding alone of, of, of being able to witness, that's what we do when we meditate. We witness, you know, the thoughts arise and they disappear, and we're still here. Mm -hmm. So we obviously can't be that. I mean, that is so profound when you get that. Can't be the thoughts, you mean? You can't be the thoughts. Right. The thoughts come and go, right? I mean, you know, you sit there, and I, mean, I know you're, you're, you practice a lot of meditation. You sit there, and you watch the mind go crazy, right? And then, and you think about, you know, I forgot to buy milk in the supermarket. Uh, my, my boyfriend said this or whatever. I mean, but they come and go, and who's, who's watching? Who's witnessing? And so when you get, when you really get that, um, then, then you're, you also have the ability to question these stories then. Yeah. Another I mean, helpful I, way of, I'm sorry, go ahead. I, I notice, for example, a lot of people come because they have relationship problems. Mm -hmm. So, so I, I like to use this one sort of as, an, as a good example about what, what happens to us when we're so identified with our stories, what you just said before. If you take a divorce, a divorce, the reality of a divorce is like you have two people who were living together and now they part. That's, that's the fact of what happened, right? And then you have this woman who comes in the door, and it's like, ah, oh, you know, it's like the end of the world. I lost the love of my life. Uh, I'll be alone for the rest of my life. I'll never be happy again. That's her interpretation of this event. I know for a fact, because I've been divorced three times now, especially the first time when I got divorced, it was like, hallelujah, you know, now I'm free. I had a completely different story about what divorce meant so so just that simple example it all depends on like, the circumstances of the relationship i suppose you know and how, but, how you're going to react mean, to it but your but your reaction what i'm trying to say is that your reaction is what you get to experience the divorce in both cases if you think it's great it's still the reality is two people who were together they 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 parted that's sort of like the reality and then you have all your interpretations of what it means for your life. And and that, but that's what your experience is. But it's not inherent in the event. No. It's, a, it's, it's entirely subjective, right? Yeah, I mean, look at, you know, the weather. I mean, I've seen people <laughs> during a, ra a rainy season say, oh, this is so depressing and I'm miserable <laughs> and I hate this weather and yada, yada. Exactly. And other people are saying, oh, isn't this nice? We can light a fire and we can play cards and, you know, we, it, exactly. it's, it's kind of cozy. So it's very same weather. <laughs> exactly. And I know all about that living here in Scandinavia where it's yeah. dark a lot and rainy a lot. I mean, people really can get depressed by that too. And it's like, hello. Yeah. Uh -huh. You know, another interesting trick for um, – recognizing that you are not your story, you are not your thoughts is, I mean, you and I are both in our 60s, and uh, if, you, if we kind of introspect even a little bit, we realize we're the same person that we were in our teens, very same person. Just, you know, circumstances have changed, the body has changed, but the, the, the me, you know, that yeah. which, that's the same old thing. And I, I was just reading a Tim Freak's book, whom I just interviewed, he was saying he, he was at some seminar and, and some woman, 83-year-old woman, came to him and she said, "You know, the older I get, the easier it is for me to sort of to see that that which I really am is eternal. It's not mm -hmm. s subject to the fluctuations of time." 
And that's the good news, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but also, I mean, I've just written another book that you don't have yet called Sane Self-Talk. Um, and actually what, I, what you're sort of pointing towards is what I've also found out, that, that with this experience comes actually what, what I now am calling psychological maturity. In other words... Uh, as we become more aware of these mechanisms and as we become more aware of the fact that there's no inherent value in outer things, it's, it's our interpretation and that we can do something about this, we can also learn to have what I call more sane self-talk. That's actually what, what you're talking about now, too. I have a more realistic assessment of the human condition and, and a more realistic assessment of what it means to be a human being. And yeah, there, we have difficulties and we have this and that and we muddle through it and, you know, that we get better at taking care of ourselves when we have a more realistic assessment of what, what it means to be a human being and that we don't have to be so dragged around by our own catastrophic interpretation of events, actually. So So that's a... Even that's like growing up in a way. It's like a huge relief, I would say. Um, don't you feel also more sort of, you know yourself better and you are more able to deal with the, the ups and downs? You don't get quite so freaked out as you, you used to do or, or what? Oh, yeah. I yeah. mean, very much so. Um, yeah. You know, it's, and it's, you know, I, I don't think there's any end to the degree of, flowering of that you know de the un depth of depth of that sort of uh i mean there is something which is absolutely non-changing and mm -hmm. you know pure equanimity in its nature mm -hmm. um but the one's orientation to that the degree to which one uh embodies that and r the clarity with which one realizes that mm -hmm. in my experience so far there's there's no end to the to you know the development of that. Very well said. Yeah. Very well said. Yeah, yeah. and the, and the more it de it develops, the more it provides a, a kind of a buffer or a lubricant to the mm. the ch the changes and ups exactly. and downs of life. Yeah. They bec you know what once might have been difficult or tragic or or becomes kind of in interesting or intriguing or mm. <laughs> you know an adventure. Well said. Well said. So 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 congratulations. I mean that's what we all sort of. I mean, anyway, partly are striving for to have this more, uh, what should we say, yeah, realistic, easygoing, uh, laid-back, I mean, relationship to, to, to the experience of life in these bodies, right? I mean, we're chugging around and we're doing the best we can and not, I mean, there's so many people, the level of catastrophic thinking that so many people have and because we are, because they're so identified with the stories they don't have that ability to pull back I mean you just have to turn on CNN it's like you know crank it up crank it up the fear machine right mm -hmm. it's like hello you know so, so so and it seems to me in a way that the media is feeding on that kind of stuff you know so so we need to say what we're saying loud and clear so there's some uh, balance here I hope yeah I mean the kind of stuff we're talking Oprah's trying to do something with it, but mm. it, it, it doesn't, uh, you know, equate to big bucks uh, in the ma in the primetime media. <laughs> you know, she, she, has to, she has to throw her own money behind it to get it started. Mm. Um, but 
And, you know, what I just said is not to say that you don't have a preference in, in terms of the way things go. It's not like, oh, boy, I, I hope I get the flu because it'll be an interesting adventure. No, no, no. We need to say that. I mean, we do have our preferences, and I'm, not, we're, I'm definitely not saying that we shouldn't live as healthy, as, you know, with as much clarity as possible and that we shouldn't be as proactive as possible. I'm not saying any of that. I mean, right. but that... Life does what it does, and we don't have a choice when it's happening in that sense. I mean, that reality, this moment, I mean, it's already done, right? Yeah. So, so, so it's more a question about how are we going to relate to that. And the less freaked out we are, the better I find that we can deal with stuff. Because mm -hmm. the more freaked out you are, the, the, the less of a chance you have of making sane, wise decisions, right? So yeah. it's more that. There's a verse in the Gita, which I've probably quoted far too many times, but it's, <laughs> you, 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 have, you have control over action alone, never over exactly. its fruits. Exactly. And it's, that's very power of now-ish, because you know, you, mm -hmm. control over action alone means you really have control over what's happening now in this moment. Uh, and then, but you leave the fruits of action to what, you know, God, or however you want to, mm. to see it. Or I would say, I probably would say it like this, that, you know, you, your intention, you have control over your intention. Mm -hmm. um, but beyond that, it's not in your hands at all. It's very important to, to I mean, again, if, if peace of mind is one of our, our preferences, <laughs> very important to understand yeah. that. Because if we're attached to the fruit of our actions, it's... Uh, it's a sorry situation, you know, mm -hmm. because... Because mm -hmm. then you then you're at the mercy of of something which is out of your hands and mm -hmm. you're going to get tossed around. Mm -hmm. And I think the other thing that's really important about this whole sort of spiritual awakening that we're all we, people like you and I are going through is that we come to realize that that we actually have what I call inherent worth to begin with. Uh, and inherent worth is like. You could say, in a way, it's the nature of reality itself. I said, the, 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 the fact that we are here, the fact that, for whatever reason, consciousness is the way it is, and we have arisen in this field of consciousness. So, so, so I think that the whole identification that's going on in our society now so much with the media and, and the expectations that people have for... for how, what it takes to live a happy life and you know you got to be this thin and this beautiful and have this much money in the bank and all that stuff it, it's all based actually on uh, not understanding the nature of consciousness and the nature of reality which is that you have inherent worth to begin with because why would we be so enamored of you know being thin being beautiful being rich all that stuff that's so in your face today if we if we understood who we really are if we had a, a realistic assessment of this thing called life so so i think that it's this spiritual information that that people like you and i are are working with and we're trying to s propagate and spread as much as possible it's really so important to, to end the, the the enormous amount of human suffering that's going on i mean how, what other solution is there you know, you say you were getting more political, and I certainly had a very political background, as you can hear, too. But, but again, 
until we understand the nature of mind and consciousness and our true nature, the nature of reality, how are we going to solve any of these problems? No, good point. I mean, when I say I'm getting more political, it's um, not to the exclusion of spirituality, but actually with that as its foundation. I, yeah. I, really, I really feel that unless in, in consciousness rises, then there's no nutrient for all the re various um, relative solutions to succeed. No, no fuel. So, you know, absolutely, we need to do something about global warming and feeding, feeding the starving and, and all that stuff. All and, you, that. And, you, and you don't go to the starving kid and say, here, meditate. You, you, <laughs> you, you bring them food, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But there's no end to problems in the world. And if we merely deal with problems on the level of problems, I think it was Einstein who said that as long as you try to solve the, a problem on the level at which it was created, you're not going to succeed. You need yeah. to go to a deeper level. And, yeah. and, you know, ultimately spirituality is that deeper level. But I've seen people do the opposite and get kind of so uh, preoccupied with spirituality that they become selfish and they, and they um, don't feel like they need to do anything on a relative level. Mm. And it doesn't mm. matter and, and, and so on and so forth. That's but what I call spiritual bypass. That's yeah. yeah. Actually, at the very end of The Awakening Human Being, now that we're talking about this, I have what I call the ripple effect. Mm -hmm. uh, this quest, very question that we're talking about now that, you know, how can we change the world? I mean, that's always been, you know, like, I want to be enlightened and I want to change the world. I mean, nothing less will satisfy me, right? So, I mean, the ripple effect is that our, our thoughts, our words, our actions, they ripple out to the people in our family and to our community. And I mean, that's that on that level. But you can also say that people who are higher in consciousness, just the, the thought about the way our vibrational quality influences the field of consciousness. Mm -hmm. That the influence, so, so we, we have influence, you could say, with our thoughts, words, and actions that, that you can probably see. But how much influence do we have? On the vibrational level, also. Yeah. So, so, so there are many ways of looking at this, but you still come back to that. <laughs> if we don't get clear, it's really not going to help that much. Yeah, and as we know from physics, you know, subtler levels are more powerful. So exactly. If you if you can radiate an influence from a subtler level, it's it's going to have a big impact. There might be people in caves in the Himalayas who are having a much bigger impact exactly. on the world than political yeah, exactly. activists and so on. Yeah, because sometimes I like to say, you know, sitting quietly, doing nothing, it could be the best service you could do for the world. We, again, with this point of view. I don't yeah. know if you're, are you familiar with David Hawkins, the work of David Hawkins? Yeah, see the guy who does, has this numeric scale. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And he has this calibration about the different, you know, the, the higher, from unconditional love, that when you enter the non-dual uh, paradigm that the influence, the vibrational influence of the beings who are in that on that level of consciousness is so much vaster than people who are in fear, anger, desire. I mean, it, it's fascinating his his work. I highly recommend it. Yeah, I'm I'm very very. Uh, and he's, his, his comprehensive mapping out of the human condition is just mind-boggling. Yeah. Like everything else, it should probably be taken with a grain of salt. It's an interesting mm. theory. I think he uses muscle <laughs> testing to figure out all this exactly, stuff. Exactly, uh, exactly. Which you know, I'm a little bit skeptical <laughs> of, but <laughs> at least it's skeptical in terms of it having any absolute 
Yeah, know? but but uh, for example, his he has a book called Transcending the Levels of Consciousness, where he maps out the different levels. It's fascinating reading. I'm sure you will yeah. find it very interesting. Maybe I could interview the guy one of these days. <laughs> Oh, he's very old. I don't know if he does anymore. Oh, maybe, um, maybe not. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not sure he does public appearances anymore, but try. Definitely yeah. try. You know, I wanted to get back to something you said about intention. Uh, we have control over our intentions, and I, I, that kind of made me think. And I, I thought, well, you know, people have all kinds of crazy intentions. I mean, they have... They think, okay, well, maybe I should spend all my money on lottery tickets, and I'll get rich. Or um, may- maybe if I, according you know, to your faith, it shall be done. Yeah, you, if, right? I, if I go and you know with this gun and rob this liquor store, it'll be to my advantage. So you know, how do we get a leverage on our intentions so as to make them more, to elevate them, make them more wise and more conducive to our to everyone's. Uh, well-being, including our own. Well, again, I think you know that until we wake up, our intent we're we don't realize that we have a choice about our intention, and we are because we have projected value out there, and we don't understand the nature of consciousness. So, so we are not really choosing. I don't believe that people are. I mean, you say, okay, everybody's choosing, but con- making conscious choices that are for the highest good you have to be aware that you can do this before you can actually ha- I mean it's, this is high spiritual practice that you're talking about I mean actually we're choosing every, in every now moment aren't we I mean what are you going to do now are you going to go left are you going to go right are you going to focus on God are you going to indulge in catastrophic thinking are you going to see the divinity in this person or are you going to think that you know so so and each one of these, this is our karma, you could say. Each one of these choices is engendering another activity, uh, a certain response. So, so, so it's, uh, it's a fascinating thing to become aware of how much choice you have. I mean, this is free will we're talking about, and this is what makes us human and which also makes this human experience so interesting because we get to experience the results of our choices. So... Yeah, and you say when we wake up, that makes it sound like a static watershed moment. No, no. To to me, there's degrees. Absolutely. (laughs) I mean, my whole life story. I mean, I'm 67 years old now. I mean, it's like it. it, I would say that the 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 trans the transforming moment. You could say yes, it's incremental. But when you start to realize about the nature of consciousness. That's a watershed. Yeah, that's a big breakthrough. Yeah. Sure. Before that, you're sort of a victim of all these forces that you don't understand. So there you're starting to wake up, but but then the awakening process is, as you say, I'm definitely not one of those people that you hear about that just, you know, and then Om Satyananda, that's it. Yeah. I mean, I've had my moments, definitely, but, and I have more clarity, less clarity. I would say I'm definitely more and more awake. I definitely agree yeah. with you that it's a process. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what to say to such people. It's just somebody recently said to me, I am totally awake. And <laughs> I don't know what to say. It's like, all right, well, let's wait Let's w- wait and see, okay? <laughs> I would think that was probably a wise choice. <laughs> I would have also said, good for you, right? I mean, yeah. what are you going to say? So, <laughs> I totally agree. 
I know? totally agree. I mean, you know, and I always give people the benefit of the doubt. I don't say absolutely that's not possible, but who knows? Because who knows? But I'm just very skeptical, and and I I can't. Definitely not my my experience. Not mine. And no. if someone says it's theirs, I can't, you know, emphatically deny it. But I'd be interested to talk to them in five years and see whether they still feel yeah. that that was the case. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely right. But I think that also when I, even when I look back at my at my past, I can see. I mean, I can even find moments like when I was ten or twelve years old where I had moments of that divine bliss consciousness. Om Satyananda. It was. I mean, I didn't have the words for it. I didn't have the context for it. I didn't know what was happening to me. But I can, I can see now with the knowledge I have today and with the experiences I have today that I've had them along the way at different points in time very powerfully. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have them also now. But again, as you say, it's, not a, <laughs> it's definitely not a constant. And I mean, it's, it's a really bumpy road. And I think also what's happening to me now is that the more awake I become, the more of the dark, of the dark side or the old stuff is actually coming up too in my experience. I don't know if you have that, but I feel that I don't know for sure. But I think it may have something to do with becoming more conscious that it allows. I don't know the old stuff to come up for. No, exactly. I think. Oh. Um, well, there's several interesting things from what you just said. One is, um, there's a phone message coming in, it's kind of distracting. I, I think it, there's a bigger container yeah. in, in which things can be resolved. Like if you take a glass of water and, and throw some mud in it, it's going to yeah. mu- muddy up the whole glass. But if you right. take, take an ocean and throw some mud in it, the mud just dissolves. So the more ocean-like you become, the more stuff can be dissolved and or resolved and, and many people report actually that uh, they, they'll have some significant uh, awakening and then the shit will really hit the fan yeah <laughs> you know, I think that's really because it was all experience. bottled up before it couldn't exactly. you know but then there's this openness and it can begin to be released oh, I'm glad to hear you, you agree with that because that seems to me to be really my experience that the more clear I get or as you say the more spacious the more there is room for I mean also I come from a really dysfunctional family and a really had a really traumatic start and all of those crazy experiences I've had. It's true. They've all been sort of bottled up, in a way, spiritual bypass. And now that I've become more spacious and more understanding of all these things, they are really coming up again to be, to be cleared, I think. Yeah. I hope so. <laughs> no, you're probably right. Um, and you know the whole idea of, uh, you said a minute ago that, you know, I don't know. You're not in some kind of perpetual enlightened state or something, and there's still fluctuation and and a lot you know, variation going on. I, you know, I I, I kind of discussed this with Tim uh, Freak a little while ago too, and he also was saying he didn't think anybody's in some kind of absolutely stable enlightened state. I tend to disagree. I think there are people who, you know, are 24/7 in a very clear state of realization, which just doesn't get yeah. overshadowed by anything. Yeah. Um, no matter what, twenty four seven means waking, dreaming, and sleeping. Yeah. That's that's it. But yeah. um, you know, such people are probably rare, but probably becoming more common. 
and we don't need to compare ourselves with them or anything else. You know, it'll happen if it happens when it happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, you know, I think it should be con- concluded within the realm of possibility for, for human, thought, hu- human development. <laughs> yeah. I like this. Actually, I just was watching on YouTube Sri Nisargadatta. Uh-huh. I, ne- I didn't realize that there were any films of him. And it was really interesting to see how agitated he was and how, you know, I'm, when you read his book, I Am That, you know, it's like, wow. And then to actually see him it, sort of, and to know the clarity of mind that this guy had and the level of consciousness that he had. But he also had his human personality, you could oh, see yeah. in this video. If you haven't seen it, go in on YouTube and watch him. I mean, he's like, da 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 and he's, he he's very, seems very agitated and very excited and He's not, you know, this, we sometimes have that picture of the, you know, when yes. you're enlightened that you're Mellow. so calm. <laughs> so yeah, I just hope for me. And in his case, he's puffing away at the cigarettes to, exactly. to, to which I mean, his body like, was addicted. Yeah. You know. But, you know, you can't judge a book by its cover. No, uh, exactly. And, you know, you need to approach such a person with a kind of the attempt to visualize their internal state, you know, if, as best you can. And to realize that it may be a far cry from what you infer from the outer from the, appearance. Apparently, apparently, that's why it was so fascinating to watch. Because if you read his books and you have and you meditate on what he says, you know, ask yourself over and over again. It only took him three years, he says. Yeah. The the to ask yourself the I am nitty 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 right. Yeah. So, yeah. Huh. So I have quite a few uh, people in Scandinavia watching this show and even se- <laughs> e- even sending in donations and all. So Good, great. It, it can't entirely be a, a, um, you know, a bunch of agnostics. Um, there, seems to be, <laughs> there seems to be a fair amount of spiritual zeal well, over there. Lo- yes, absolutely. But I just meant that the way it's presented here, it's, not, it's definitely not the God thing. Um, yeah. There's a lot of serious spiritual practice here. Definitely, definitely. Mm-hmm. Buddhist, well, so on. Yeah. In my opinion, the God thing, you know, when I think of God, talk of God, it's not definitely not the sort of traditional religious image of no. God. No, you know. me neither. But, you know, I think God, I mean, it's, it may not be a good word because there's so much baggage with it, uh, but, you know, it's staring us, that, that reality is staring us in the face. I mean, Absolutely. It, anything you look at closely enough, you, know, you notice that there's incredible orderliness and intelligence and structure and, you know, amazing, intricate mm. uh, thing going on there that's not just mm. little billiard balls running into each other <laughs> haphazardly. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> it's, just, it's true, though, the word God is so fraught with... Uh, yeah probably better not to use it if you don't have to anyway that's my experience yeah so, but it's the same because we use words to actually try to communicate something and exactly. if you use a word like that we're likely to miscommunicate mm. yeah mm. so take us through the book a little bit more um you know some i know you see have a principles and a practice section mm-hmm. and, I, and uh, mainly i was reading the principle section because it's towards the beginning well but, actually i i think mm-hmm. I'd say, i could say also that if you if, if people are interested in my, the way i've sort of formulated this the uh, the mental laws we have them on our on, on our website you can okay. download them for free good uh so the website is www.beamteam.com that's our website and if you click on the mental laws that's the first section of this book you can download them and and again that sort of has been my take on trying to to sort of present the nature of consciousness and mind in a very sort of 
scientific <laughs> way. And uh, what I have I liked your treatment of that in the book. You know, you you were saying like, you know, you don't get mangoes from an apple seed or whatever. Mm. Um mm. there are obviously laws of nature that um govern things in a particular way. Exactly. And I, 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 can, I try uh, to start off by sort of comparing the fact that we, we're all familiar with the fact that there are physical laws. Right. Like, and then I use the example of the law of gravity. I mean, w the law of gravity is if you stand up on a building and you jump off, you're going to fall down. It doesn't matter who you are. Right. You know, it doesn't matter if you're President Obama or you're the cleaning lady or you're Chinese. Or, so, so this is an impersonal mechanism that is automatic, impersonal for everyone. It's, it's happening at all times. And it's also important to know that it's happening even if you don't know about it, even if you're not conscious about it. So in other words, the law of gravity, you can't stand up there and say, oh, I didn't know about the law of gravity. I shouldn't have hit the ground, right? right. It doesn't care if you know about it. So I, I use that as sort of my launching pad to say that that the, that the mental mechanisms of mind are in the same way they are impersonal automatic mechanisms that are in operation for all of us whether or not we are aware of them mm -hmm. and whether or not we believe in them exactly you know we, we might say uh, you know there might we can think of a million examples but a person might insist they don't believe in a particular thing they don't they don't believe that the world is more than 6000 years old and people used to ride around on dinosaurs now you know if you believe that then it has no bearing whatsoever on whether the world really is 6000 years old exactly. <laughs> you know? exactly reality doesn't really care <laughs> yeah and it doesn't doesn't matter if it's said it in some book yeah or you think it's some book said it, so, said it. So, so that's also why. And then I say to the reader in the book, I say, well, don't. I tried to set it up like this. Don't believe me. I try to set it up so I'm, I'm trying to make a presentation. And you test this things that I, these sort of mechanisms that I point out and see if they are right. And so I start off with this uh, thought that the first mental law I call the law of thoughts arising. Mm -hmm. That thoughts arise and disappear. And then I say to the reader, okay sit down on a chair and in front of a white wall, a white wall with no pictures, preferably, just a white wall, and look at this white wall and then tell yourself that you're not going to think. I can see how you came up with that example. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what are you referring to? The white wall? Yeah, you got these white walls there. <laughs> okay, so anyway, so, so, so when you do that, I mean, it, you're a, a, a meditation practitioner, so, so you can maybe be <laughs> not think for, I don't know, how long can you go before a thought arises? Oh, not, not very long at all. Right? Exactly. Although sometimes you get into a real deep state and you, you yeah. sort of slip into something and there's a yeah. hi hiatus from thoughts for a while, but right. ordinarily the mind just does its thing. Exactly. So, so that's the first observation, that thoughts arise and disappear. And you can test that for yourself. Anybody can sit down and test it for themselves. And they will see that this is an impersonal mechanism, that we're not doing it, that thoughts are just, you know, I forgot to buy milk in the supermarket, and then it's gone again. And then so, so, so I think that that's a very important uh, observation to make for yourself. I always, when we, we lecture and do workshops, we always sit with people and get them to do that so they find out that that's the nature of what's going on. And then the second law I call the law of witnessing. And then I say, okay, go back to the, to the chair on the white wall and do it again. You, so you sit there and you look at the white wall and you say, I'm not going to think, 
and then the thought comes up, you know, I forgot to buy milk in the supermarket, and it goes away, and then the next thought comes up, oh, I'm really not sitting very well, I have a pain in my butt or whatever, and oh, my boyfriend. So you watch the thoughts arise and disappear, and then then I say, well, okay, so so who, who or what is noticing this? Mm. And that's... You know what's interesting there, though, is that you you get gripped by the thought you get caught into the thought mm. and to the point where you don't realize you're thinking it until after a while the thought maybe begins to dissipate and grip you a bit less and you realize oh i've gone off on this thought you yeah. know you, you, you're sort of like so absorbed in it that you didn't yeah. really even know you were absorbed in you it. didn't notice that that's that's also when we identify with our thoughts and yeah. our story. we're off but anyway so if you but if you just go back to the fact that at some point in time, even if you do that, then especially if you're trying to meditate, then you realize I better focus on my breathing again or whatever your technique is. So you come back to. But then you. But then I say, well, okay, so 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 this witnessing, what, you know, th that's who you really are, right? So so because anything that arises and disappears can't be real. So that's as far as I can see, that's a major <laughs> breakthrough in consciousness to just. To have that awareness, right? Yeah, even that recognition can be a major breakthrough. Yeah. And you know, I kind of I like the fact that you present a, a scientific, systematic approach to all this because, you know, spirituality may have the connotation for some people of being kind of airy fairy or ooga booga mm. or you know, mm. in, involving beliefs or metaphysical leaps of fancy. But mm. um, it really should be experiential. And mm. it, that's really what it should, in my opinion, what, what we should be referring to when we talk of practical contemporary spirituality. Mm. It's, it's all about actually, you know, having an experience of some sort and, and not, not necessarily a transitory one either, but just it's experiential, not, right. um, you know, not metaphysical or. or yeah, that you can test it for yourself. Yes, yeah, testable by scientific yeah. uh, yeah. Procedures, well, really. I've noticed that the, the, the feedback I get here in Scandinavia for these mental laws, because um, I've been teaching it for a while, people are saying to me, oh, we should be teaching this to our kids in school. Mm -hmm. This is a very simple presentation that I have that kids can understand. As you say, that it's easy to test. You can listen to it. You can explain it. And you can, you can say, okay, yeah, this makes sense. I can see from my own experience that this is actually what's happening. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, and so, so then I, I don't know if you want to go through the whole thing, but the mental laws are. You can go I, I through try, some of the highlights, whatever you think. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that then, then the next thing I try to do is I say that okay, that the nature of the human experience, I call that the law number three, is the law of naming, mm -hmm. where in other words, so um, the quantum field or, or the the field of aware, the field that is like. Uh, life itself, the non-dual reality, which is beyond languaging, the way we sort of deal with it in our human experience is that we have thoughts which name this field, you know, that this is a chair, this is a lamp, this is a computer. Uh, so, so it's, uh, I mean, and again, this is for convenience. How are we going to manage to, you know, to make coffee in the morning? We, so we have all this naming and then the world arises, you could say, also. that mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sure you've had the experience of, you know, waking up in the morning sometimes and uh, <laughs> it's a complete blank, you know, and you don't know who you are or where you are. Or, 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 or. And then, you know, you look 
oh, and there's his partner. Oh, yeah, that's my partner. And the alarm clock rings. And you, and then the, all these, the names arise and, and the world arises. You know, so th thoughts arise, world arises. So, so this naming process is actually what we do automatically. It happens so quickly. Again, I try to get, what I'm trying to do in this book is to slow down the mechanism of mind enough so that we start to understand what's happening. So, so I also try to slow this down a bit to notice the naming process. Mm -hmm. And then I also say that, okay, naming is innocent enough, you know, telephone, lamp, computer, tree. Uh, but then we go into to more and more generations of naming, and then we get to the storytelling, which is where we start to get in trouble. And so then you're saying that naming is sort of important and useful up to a point, but it can be taken to an extreme, which makes it a, a, a trap of some sort. Well, in other words, as soon as you start to tell stories about, you know, you could say, tree outside my window, that's sort of a statement of fact. And then you say, okay, tree uh, is shading the neighbor's yard. And then the neighbor is, you know, getting angry at you for not being a good neighbor and the tree should be cut down because you're... When we get to, to our interpretations of the naming, then we start to, to get into storytelling. Mm. And if the story makes you happy, fine, you can say. But a lot of people have stories that are very stressful and that are making them unhappy. And that's where that investigation model comes in at the end of the book, that when our stories are stressful or making us unhappy, maybe we should question them. But t to stick to the mental laws, then I go on to explain in law number four, which I call the law of cause and effect, which is really the, the heart of the mechanism that, that thought is cause and our experience of life on this plane is the effect of our thoughts. That we, whatever story we tell, that's what we get to live. And that's fine. Again, it's fine enough, it's innocent enough, except if you're miserable or unhappy. You, by, by understanding this mechanism, you, you, can, you can step back from it and you might want to question your story. You might want to see. When you understand that the thoughts are arising, you're the witness, you're naming, you're telling stories, then you have a choice suddenly. What if um, this, you, you know, you're the victim of circumstances beyond your control, like you know, you're in Nazi Germany and you're thrown into a concentration camp, you exactly. know, and it's a miserable, horrible situation. Mm -hmm. I mean, is it miserable and horrible because you're just telling yourself a story about it, or is it intrinsically good, miserable and horrible? Good, good question. Good question. I mean, I've I've been very challenged the last many years with a, I've had a serious ear problem, mm -hmm. uh, which has totally changed my life. I've been it, I get very dizzy. I've had it's it's. So this question you're asking, I have thought about it a lot. When something happens, when the so-called shit hits the fan, right? How are you gonna? How do you react to it? And again, what I have found out from my own suffering and my own sort of physical ailment that that has really changed my life a lot is that I still do have options. Uh, that I still do have. Um, you know, what, what am I going to focus on? How am I, first of all, making peace with where you are. Reality is what it is. And so how am I going to relate to this? You know, I can say, why is my life better because I have this? Uh, what is the, the hidden gifts in this experience? I mean, I know for me, who has been such an outward person, an outgoing person, a super active person, 
it's like sometimes I think to myself I got this ear trouble because God said to me now you have to sit quiet Barbara you know so so, but I mean that took me quite a while to get to that but again in answer to your question I suppose that people who even in terrible catastrophic situations that it still has to do with how do we relate to it but there's no you know as long as we're identified with the physical body and that's who we are I mean we stuff happens yeah um it does, and uh, and actually, you know, you can bring up extreme situations as cases in point. And but even there, as you say, you can think of even different well-known people who dealt with the same situation in entirely different completely ways. Completely different ways. Yes. You know, yes. Some were completely crushed and embittered completely. And, and depressed. Right. Others came out of it, you know, with greater wisdom and compassion. And so think forth. about Nelson Mandela, twenty-seven yeah, look at years, that. man. I mean, just look at that man, right? Yeah. So yeah. That's a He's a living example of that. Great example. So, you know, so, or the so Dalai Lama, you know. The Dalai Lama, yeah. After what he went through with China, you know, mm. he, he, he refers to the Chinese as my friends, the enemy. <laughs> <laughs> Such an inspiration. Yeah. yeah. That's a good point. So, yeah. you know, it's, uh, it's not absolute. It's not all or nothing. Um, Regardless of the circumstances, there's always some wiggle room. So, I mean, how do we hold it, you know? Yeah. That's what we're really talking about. The event is what it is. Do we hold it in fear? Do we hold it in anger? Do we hold it in acceptance? Do we hold it in understanding? Can we hold it in unconditional love? I mean, there, there, we have these choices. Um, and how do we cultivate our ability to choose, you know, to really have the, the freedom and the wisdom and the strength to, to make the more constructive choices rather than be victimized by it? Well, first of all, I would say, again, to understand the mechanism of mind. Again, that's the reason why I've spent so much of my life and time and energy trying to explain is because, again, I don't believe that we can do this if we don't understand that we do have a choice. So yeah. that's number that's one. That's the first step, right. And then, but then that... Once you do understand that, that's really what all spiritual practice is about, trying to make better choices. I mean, our daily practice, you know, surrender all judgment to God. That's a great spiritual practice, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, just that. I mean, we're, we're judging all the time. We think we know best, we, but we're not running the show, obviously, right? So, so just the spiritual practice of surrendering all judgment to God. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, wow. Mm. Yeah. So 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 the so so any of these sort of basic uh you know seeing the divinity in everyone or the, any of these you could say focal points if you really take it as a spiritual practice mm-hmm. very powerful and i suppose that any of them could be seen either as a description or a prescription in, mm-hmm. in in other words there might be people who that describes the way they are spontaneously uh, that would be great. <laughs> yeah, well, the many people do. Uh, you know, for instance, like Mandela. I don't mean I don't know. I'm not an expert on Mandela, but it seems that he, you know, it's his forgiving, wise, wise nature is so ingrained in him that it's not mm. like something he has to wrestle with in order to no, do it. No, every day, right? You, you know, but perhaps that was developed over you know all those 27 years, of, and there could there could have been some dark, bitter times, and he, mm. he kind of made the choices. Uh, you know, and here's where it becomes a prescription rather than a description. Right, right, he, right. he 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 made the choices to cultivate that kind of mm. uh, personality. 
Well, you could say also that I mean, spiritual practice, yes, in the beginning it's a conscious choice and it becomes more a Second habit. Nature. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You beca- it becomes integrated and it becomes a part of your being, right? Yeah, so like that, tennis or playing the piano or yeah, anything else. You, right. you, you do it enough and, you and learn. It, 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 it gets incorporated in your right. brain. Yeah. yeah. Isn't that a wonderful thing that we, yeah. actually can, that we can change our habits? Again, that we can pra- it's practice. That's why it's called spiritual practice, right? Mm-hmm. That we... That we can make a choice, surrender all judgment to God, for example, and that as you, if you continue to practice that, it will become the default position, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know what's good or bad, you know. I cannot see the end of all things, you know. Is it true that this is so terrible? Maybe, you know. So. And I should think people would find that encouraging because if people are told that, you know, this stuff is supposed to just instantly take you know you're supposed to just instantly be able to be this way and then they find that they're not they could feel like there's something wrong with them or they're a failure or they'll never get it but if if they understand it to be a progressive uh, Mm. development then then they can be inspired to keep on keeping on well i think that's a very important point the last very last section of that book i have i call the daily practice where I actually discuss just what you're saying, that it's important to understand that it's a process. It takes a long time. The more you practice, the better you get at it, that you have your ups and downs. And then I also have these different daily programs that I recommend to people. You know, if you only want to use this much time, I have some suggestions. If you want to use more time, I have some more suggestions. So in other words, and then I say, you know, also be aware of the fact that you you get better and you get worse at the same time. Sometimes you think, like, I'm doing all this spiritual practice. Why am I feeling so lousy, right? And, and that all of this is a, a way of embracing your humanity, but also understanding, as you say, that it's not an instant fix. It's not magic. It's hard work. And, mm. you know. Yeah. That seems like it's good that you ended up in Denmark rather than Berkeley or something. <laughs> <laughs> it, ma- it made you kind of, uh, you know, formulate a more practical approach. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So what, well, what maybe else you'll, well, maybe you'll come to Copenhagen one day and we'll get to meet face to face. I'd Who love knows? to. I've never been to Scandinavia. Okay. I'd I've love to have been around most of Europe, but not, okay. not up there. Okay. So um, is there anything else you'd like to bring out? I mean, there's no rush here. If you feel like, you know, I mean, we can sort of do the P.T. Barnum approach and leave him wanting more, or or, <laughs> or else if you feel like there's anything else that we'd, you'd really like to, you know, play with a bit, we can take a bit more time. Well, I th- okay, I think maybe we, I'd like to end with, you know, I think that our, another good spiritual practice is um, to ask yourself, what is preventing me from being... I don't know if I should say happy right now or what is preventing me from experiencing the true radiance of my nature right now? Um, because as far as I can see, Om Satyananda, the, the divinity or the radiance or our true nature, whatever we want to call it, that's what we already are. Yeah. And then this whole mind thing that and today we're all so mental, it's like as far as I can see, it's the clouds that are, are actually covering the sun if you would say our ra- our true radiance is like the sun it's already there so 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 as far as i can see spirituality the spiritual pathway is about deprogramming unlearning all the stuff that prevents us from experiencing the divinity that we are and so therefore i think that understanding the way the mind works and ha- beginning to have the ability to question our 
underlying beliefs, our stories, and to see how our interpretations are, are making us unhappy, that, that this de-learning process is it's so exciting, and therefore I would like to say that if you at any now moment ask yourself, what is preventing me from this exper- experiencing this radiance right now, whatever comes to mind, that's the story that you need to question as far as I can see. Mm-hmm. You know, I should, I should be thinner. I should have a better relationship. I should have more money in the bank. I should have better health. Uh, I should be younger. We have all these expectations, stories, requirements that, as far as I can see, block the experience that we are the happiness. We are the divinity. We are the love that we're seeking. It's already us. So, so I, I like that as a spiritual practice, too, to, 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 to ask myself that. What is it right now, Barbara, that's preventing you from being present and from, from just having that experience of this, the suchness of this, right? Yeah, nice. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that might be a good thought to leave them with. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, all right. Well, uh, let me just conclude then. Um, mm-hmm. I've been speaking with Barbara Berger, who's written a lot of books, but the most recent, well, the most recent was Sane Self-Talk, Remember What's Important and Live a Happy Life. Mm-hmm. And the one prior to that, which I've been reading, is The Awakening Human Being. Um, I'll, I'll link to Barbara's website and to some of these books from batgap.com. Barbara, as she mentioned, lives in Denmark, but gets around, uh, does things over there. I don't suppose you ever do things in the States, right? You're mainly a... I, I have, actually, but I actually because I've had this ear problem, I haven't yeah. been able to, f- to fly for the last two years, so I haven't been to the States in a while, but I usually go wherever I'm invited. That's uh-huh. sort of the deal. Okay, so anyone listening to this who wants to invite Barbara someplace, <laughs> maybe she can heavily sedate herself and get on an airplane. <laughs> uh, good. And... Uh, there's also some, I guess, uh, some audio material on your site or videos people can watch or anything? Yeah, there's a lot of interviews on the site with okay. me. Yeah, yeah, Good. radio interviews. I've been really on a lot of shows in the U.S. lately since the book came out. Uh, but as I said, there's the mental laws you can download for free. Uh, some of the material we've been talking about if you're interested in that. Yeah, I'm sure a bunch of people will do that. Um, and... Uh, so as far as my site is concerned, it's batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and there you can find all the interviews I've ever done archived and new ones showing up each week, although next week I'm going to my nephew's wedding, so I won't be doing one next weekend. <laughs> um, the fo- following weekend is Isaac Shapiro, um, who's also over in Europe at the moment. And uh, in addition to the videos of these interviews, there's an audio podcast, and you'll see a link to that with every video so that you can subscribe in iTunes and get them on your iPod if you like and uh, there is a uh, you can subscribe also on the YouTube channel there's a there's a link on the site for signing up to be notified by email every time a new interview is posted there's a donation button which you're free to click if you like and there is a uh, my wife is waving, waving her hands over there like yay uh, <laughs> Oh, yeah, she's teasing me about this little thing I do at the end of every interview where I go like this at the end of every point. <laughs> and I, I, don't, I don't know why I'm doing that, but <laughs> some kind, of a, strange, some kind of a strange little habit. Um, <laughs> so, and one more thing is that there's a discussion group.
at um, <laughs> the discussion Good. group there at batgap.com, um, which uh, sometimes gets very lively. People like to get in and chit-chat about mm -hmm. the, the things that we've been discussing. And sometimes Great. the person I've interviewed gets in there and answers questions and, okay. you know, and inter interacts with people. So um, keep an eye on that, Barbara, if anybody wants to pose a question to you or something, maybe you can answer it in there. Okay, on your site now yeah. after the show. Okay, I'll go yeah. and look. Not immediately, but in a few days when this is up. Okay, okay, yeah. super, great, thank you. Okay, great. So thanks to all those who've been listening or watching, and we'll see you next time.